Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. In today's scripture, Jesus wants to feed approximately 15,000 people. Um, That's 5,000 men plus women and children. So he asked one of his disciples, Philip, where are we going to get bread to feed all these people? And John tells us that he asks this question in order to test him. What was the test? The test was, do Jesus' disciples believe that in Jesus Christ they have enough? As I argue in this sermon, this is a test that our Lord gives us present-day disciples all the time. Do we believe that in Jesus Christ we have enough? So, I hope you'll enjoy the sermon. The text for the sermon is John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15, which I'm going to read right now. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Last month, a team of explorers from New Zealand were on an expedition in Antarctica, South Pole, and they were excavating about 150 artifacts that were left behind by a team of British explorers 106 years earlier, in 1911. One of the artifacts that these New Zealand explorers found was a fruitcake, a fruitcake. Still packaged in its original packaging and tin, it was made by a British um, biscuit company. The tin was badly rusted, but the fruitcake itself, according to scientists, was remarkably well preserved. (laughs) One scientist said it is, quote, almost edible. And some of you are thinking, well, fruitcake at its best is almost edible. Show of hands, would anyone be tempted to take a bite of this 106-year-old... Ah, there you go. Good old Phil, Bob, yeah. 
The, the problem is the butter, which is rancid now, um, but uh, it probably wouldn't kill you if that makes you feel any better. Um, but, but, you know, I get it. Fruitcake is nobody's favorite. Well, I shouldn't say that. Most people um, don't necessarily think that fruitcake is the greatest dessert of all time. But this remarkable discovery does prove that there is more than one fruitcake in the world. Because you know the old joke that, you know, there's just one fruitcake and no one likes it. So they just keep re-gifting it to other people. But there's actually two. We know for sure. Consider by contrast a steaming hot loaf of fresh baked bread. It is irresistible. Everyone forgets about their diet when there's hot, fresh bread around. Is anything better assuming you don't have celiac disease. Um, In today's scripture, Jesus creates bread out of nothing or almost nothing. Five loaves and two small fish in order to say to us as satisfying as warm, fresh baked bread is to hungry people. I am more satisfying to you than that. In a sermon on the same text, Pastor John Piper said the following. One of the reasons God created bread or created the grain and the water and the yeast and the fire and the human intelligence to make it is so that when Jesus Christ came into the world, he would be able to use the enjoyment of bread and the nourishment of bread as an illustration of what it means to believe on him and be satisfied with him. I believe that with all my heart, bread exists to help us know what it is like to be satisfied in Jesus. He may be on to something. You won't learn this in a high school physics class or biology class or chemistry class, but it is true. The Bible says nothing exists for itself. Nothing in this universe is here accidentally. It's all designed by God for a reason. Listen to Colossians 1.16. For by him, meaning Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. For him. So in the Gospel of John in chapter 4, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at the well that he has come to offer her and us living water. Is there anything better on a hot summer day when you're, you've been working in the yard, you're sweaty, you're thirsty, and you have a glass of cool water, or not even a glass. I saw in a hardware store not, not long ago, they were selling garden hoses, and there's a sign attached to some garden hoses now that says, um, safe to drink water from this hose. And I was thinking, are there hoses that aren't safe to drink water from? Because if there were, surely I would have been poisoned a long time ago. Because one of life's greatest pleasures is when you're hot and thirsty and it's in the summer and you're outside and you get to drink water from a hose. Jesus says that he has come to satisfy us like that, like cool water on a hot day, but to satisfy us even more than that. 
Many of us right now are prepared or are in the process of preparing to lose power in the wake of Hurricane Irma. And, and you know that feeling when you've gone a long time without power. The house is dark, it's cold, it's uncomfortable, and suddenly what happens? The lights come on, and you're like, yeah, you feel like dancing, you know, because it's so great when the lights come on. It's satisfying. Think of Jesus' words now in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is saying, I came to satisfy you like like lights coming on after a storm, after you've been in the dark for a while and you're cold and depressed. I came to satisfy you like that, but even more than that. Or think about the wedding in Cana of Galilee in John chapter 2. Wine, when drunk responsibly by those who are able, is a great symbol of celebration and joy. For many people, it's very satisfying, which is why wine connoisseurs are willing to spend dozens or hundreds of dollars for that perfect bottle of wine. When Jesus turned these giant jugs of water into enough wine to to satisfy dozens or hundreds of people at a wedding feast for days. It was as if he were saying to us, I came to satisfy you like fine and abundant wine at a wedding reception, but the satisfaction I offer you is far greater than that. Notice verse 2 in today's scripture. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, the signs. Why does John call these healing miracles signs? Because Jesus never heals anyone for the sake of healing. Think about it. None of these miracles of healing in and of themselves was permanent. Each person that Jesus healed would one day later get sick Maybe of something else, but they would later die. Even when Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, Lazarus lived only to die again someday. But this great healing, though temporary, was a sign that pointed to the reality that through faith in Christ and his atoning work on the cross, we have eternal healing from our sin. And someday, when we ourselves, like Jesus before us, are resurrected into God's kingdom, we'll have new bodies that will be incapable of suffering, sickness, disease, and death. I got my flu shot last week at Publix. They paid me $10 to do it, which was nice. Um, The flu, I mean, when it's really the flu and not just a bad cold, (laughs) the flu makes you feel like you're dying. I've had it once in my life. I thought I was going to die. But that's the way the flu is. And then... Almost miraculously, your fever breaks, your appetite returns, you begin to get your strength back, 
And it's such a relief. It's so satisfying. Jesus was saying through his healing ministry, I came to satisfy you like the satisfaction that comes from recovering from a terrible illness. But the satisfaction I offer is so much better than that. Do you see the pattern? Every good and God-honoring pleasure, which at best can only be fleeting and temporary in this world, is intended by God to give us a small taste of heaven and to make us hungry for Jesus Christ. Every satisfaction we experience in this world is partial and temporary. We get hungry again. We get thirsty again. We get cold again. We get lonely again. We're in the dark again. But every incomplete satisfaction is intended by God to point to the lasting, permanent, eternal satisfaction that we find in Christ alone. Bishop Mike Lowry is the bishop of uh, the Central Texas Conference in our United Methodist Church. In a blog last week, um, reflecting on the, the response to the flooding in, in Texas, he asked, what if Christians sought the spiritually lost the way volunteers have been seeking people in southeast Texas? And, and why don't we? Maybe we don't really believe people are threatened by a spiritual death that is as real as water rising all around you. I am overwhelmed with the conviction that I should offer the saving grace of Jesus Christ to all I meet so people can experience God's salvation. That's a person who gets it. All of our good and God-ordained relief efforts through UMCOR, which our own apportionment dollars through this local church supports, will, will help to save victims from disastrous hurricanes. The relief we provide is temporary, but these relief efforts ought to bear witness to our Lord Jesus Christ, who saves us from the ultimate disaster an eternity spent apart from God because of our sin. Our relief efforts, in other words, are a sign pointing to Jesus Christ. Similarly, what we're doing in a little while through Rise Against Hunger, packaging over 10,000 meals to hungry people around the world. This effort is going to be a sign that is pointing people to Jesus, the only, their, their only bread, or in this case, their only rice that will truly and eternally satisfy them and us. Like us, Jesus and his disciples have an opportunity to feed a lot of people. In fact, they're going to feed about 15,000 people. Now, I know this miracle is referred to as the feeding of the 5,000, but as John says and other evangelists say, this is 5,000 men. It's not counting women and children. So probably there were more like 15,000 that they were going to be feeding. Nevertheless, Jesus says to his disciple Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And John tells us that Jesus asks Philip this question in order to test him, to test him. Well, what do you think? Did Philip pass the test? No, because Philip answered eight months wages, 200 denarii. A denarius is worth one day's wage. They are not enough to give each person here just a little bit of bread. So they don't have the money. But even if they did have it, 
it would hardly be enough to give each person a small morsel. They don't have enough money. But there's a bigger problem here. At this point in Jesus's ministry, Philip has already seen, like in John chapter one, that Jesus possesses supernatural knowledge about other people. In John chapter two, as we just talked about, he he's seen Jesus uh, uh, transform water into an incredibly abundant supply of fine wine. He has seen Jesus perform one miracle after another. He ought to have seen enough by now to know that Jesus has the power to provide food for this large crowd. And he's not going to be hampered by a lack of money. But instead, Philip says, we don't have enough. Andrew is a little better than Philip. Because instead of focusing on what they don't have, he at least focuses on what they do have. And because of the generosity of this boy who was willing to to sacrifice um, five small loaves, each one about the size of my fist, and two small fish, each one about the size of a sardine, um, because of that boy's generosity, they at least have that much. But of course, Andrew's faith isn't perfect because he goes on to say, but what are they for so many? What are they for so many? Are you kidding, Andrew? In Jesus' hands, they are just enough. Are we more like Philip or Andrew? Do we focus on what we lack, what we don't have, what we wish we had, what we resent others for having? Or do we focus on what we do have? One of the lessons that Jesus is constantly teaching his disciples throughout the Gospels is that it isn't about what we have and what we can do. It's about what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he can do. It it doesn't even take a lot of faith on our part for Jesus to do miraculous things. What does he say? If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Don't say we don't have enough because Jesus takes the little bit that we have and he makes it enough. Jesus is testing his disciples in today's scripture to see whether or not they believe that they have enough. And let me tell you, Jesus is constantly testing his present day disciples in the same way. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed that Jesus is always testing us to find out if we believe that we have enough? Think about your own life. When you find yourself feeling resentment, when you find yourself feeling angry, being depressed, being filled with worry or anxiety, why are you feeling this way? These feelings often result from a sense that you don't have enough. I don't have enough money. My job stinks. I don't get paid enough. Uh, uh, I I don't get enough appreciation from others. My my husband takes me for granted. My wife takes me for granted. I, I don't have enough love in my life. I don't have uh, that special someone in my life, that girlfriend, that boyfriend, that husband, that wife. I don't have enough friends. I'm not, I'm not good looking enough. I, I don't, 
I don't have a high enough score on my SAT or my ACT. I'm not, I'm not healthy enough. I don't have all the opportunities that my friends have. Their parents handed them uh, uh, the good life on a silver platter. And here I am working my tail off. And, and what do I have to show for it? How often do we, do we think to ourselves, I don't have enough of something that I think I need in order to be happy in my life, in order to be successful in my life. I don't have enough. But brothers and sisters, you have something. Jesus has given you something. And he wants you to know this morning that this, that this something that, he, that he's given you is enough for him to take it and transform it and do amazing and miraculous things through it. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Come on. Do you believe that? These disciples had next to nothing. Five small loaves, two tiny fish to feed 15,000. Yeah, right. Yet it was enough. In fact, earlier I said that five loaves and two fish were just enough, but that's not right. In the hands of Jesus... This tiny amount of food was more than enough because they collected 12 baskets of leftover bread. Brothers and sisters, here's a recipe for unhappiness in your life. Focus on what you don't have instead of focusing on what you do have. If the devil has created a more effective way to keep us miserable, I do not know what it is. But thank God there is a better way to live. Today's scripture shows us. Because let's notice something. When does the miracle of multiplication occur? We're not exactly told, but we can infer from this scripture. Look at verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, John says, Jesus distributed them to those who were seated. So there were five loaves. Then Jesus gave thanks. Then he distributed the bread. According to one commentator I read, the miracle happened in between. In case you think I'm reading too much into it, notice what John says later in this chapter in verse 23, which describes what happens the next day. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Why emphasize that detail? Why not say after Jesus miraculously multiplied the loaves? Because that detail, giving thanks, being grateful, is closely related to the miracle itself. If we want to know deep happiness in life, we will learn to be grateful for whatever God has given us. And not only that, we will remember that God has given us something that is just infinitely more valuable than anything else. And you know what that is. You know what God has given us. You know who God has given us. He's given us his only son, Jesus. Jesus is enough. Oftentimes when we're miserable in life, it's because we resent that God has not given us bread or he's not given us enough bread. And earlier I 
you know, whatever bread represents for you. I gave some examples uh, a little while ago. Um, But here's what our Lord is telling us this morning. Oftentimes, um, here's what he's telling us. Jesus did not come to give us bread. I mean, not That's not mostly why Jesus came. Jesus did not come to give us bread. He came to be our bread. In other words, he wants us to find our ultimate satisfaction in him alone and nothing else. Do we? And make no mistake, our God is a jealous God, the Bible tells us in many places. Our Lord Jesus loves loves us more than we can possibly imagine. But he won't compete with other people or other things for the affection and the love that we owe to him alone. He wants all of it. He demands all of it and he deserves all of it. And here's the difficult truth. If he has to take away all of these lesser forms of bread in which we trust and on which we depend, even by making us miserable in the process until at last we learn that these things and these people are not our true bread, he will gladly do so. He'll take them away. And it will be for our good because he loves us. Because what we lose will be more than compensated by what we have found in him. He alone is our bread. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. Almighty God, we confess that we often fail to appreciate your son Jesus as our bread, the bread of life. Yet it is through the giving of this bread, the giving of his life on the cross, through his life, death, and resurrection, that we have eternal life. May those who hear this message and have not received this gift of salvation, this free gift made possible only through Jesus, may they do so even this morning. And as we prepare for the work that's ahead of us today, remind us of why we're doing it. We are doing it. We're making a small sacrifice of our money and our time in gratitude to you and your son for his sacrifice and as a witness to the people who will receive it, a witness to your great love through your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll consider worshiping with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We're we're on West Main Street in downtown Hampton, Georgia. We have two worship services. We have an acoustic contemporary service at 9 o'clock and a more traditional service at 11 o'clock. Hope to see you there.